the last time I read, I read from Romans 4, verses 13 to 17, and today we're continuing with verses 18 to 25. Now, verses 13 to 17, we're talking about the promise granted to Abraham through faith, and verses 18 to 25 just continue on that theme. So Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in the faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Anne. This, St Andrews, is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we come to the end of our series this year on Romans, the first four chapters I wanted to cover, and we finally have arrived at that destination. We pray that, Lord, that by your Spirit you would quicken this word to our hearts. You would enliven it. Lord, we pray that we would encounter you this morning. And we pray that, Lord, as we look at the, in particular, at the wonderful promises and how believing in your promises brings you glory. We pray that, Lord, that in our particular circumstances and situations, that we would be gripped afresh with the wonderful, hope-drenched, joy-saturated promises of your word, which should uh, grant us an anchor of peace, and joy and stability, no matter what storms of life are happening. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look upon Abraham, the father of faith who set this example by your work in his life for our benefit today, that we would be gripped afresh with the promises of God and that our lives would be changed. Oh, Lord, spare us from hearing your word in a way that leaves us just as dead at the end as we were at the beginning. Lord, give us an urgency, a desire, a hunger. Move upon us. Only your Spirit can do this. But we plead that you would move upon St. Andrews this morning for the glory and honor of your name alone. Amen. In 2010, a, a best-selling book uh, written by uh, Laura Hillenbrand. She had written, I think, uh, Seabiscuit before. Interesting lady. Uh, she's, uh, I think, bed-bound or got significant illnesses. She's written only two or three books in her life. Uh, but uh, she researches them so well. And so I'm normally, normally not a biographer reader per se, but I do love history. And so when it had come across my, my desk, I read it. And I was gripped with the book Unbroken, the details of it. And... Uh, it was just. It was later followed by Angela Jolie a number of years later doing the movie uh, um, Unbroken, which was good, but not quite as good in my view as the book, which was phenomenal. And uh, he, it was all about Louis Zamberini. He was a person who was stated 
you know, I don't know how he came to this conclusion, but he was stated as one of the people who'd suffered most during World War II, and certainly uh, his, his story was a story of resilience, miraculous survival, and unparalleled suffering. He was in the 1930s, uh, growing up in, in Torrance, California. He had become uh, he had a bit of a rat bag, stealing and things. And his, his older brother had got him channeling his, uh, uh, I guess, testosterone, channeled it into running. And he became, he didn't like running, but he liked winning. He liked the praise. He liked what the girls looking at him. And so suddenly that winning uh, led him on a journey. And eventually he was in the 1930s part of the American Olympics team uh, for the Olympics in Germany in 1933, the famous Olympics uh, there in Nazi Germany in 1933. He didn't win, didn't get a, he wasn't a medalist, he wasn't expected to win a medal, it was his first shot, they were hoping to go for the following Olympics, which was later cancelled. Uh, he later then served in World War II as on the crew of a US bomber, and his plane went down over the Pacific Ocean, right in the middle of the ocean. And uh, a tiny little life uh, uh, boat, uh, uh, a floating fling, uh, went to the service of very limited supplies. And him and one other crew member, two other crew members, one died on that boat, was uh, on that, on that adrift. Uh, a, a Japanese fighter pilot found them and shot their, um, their boat, drilling it with holes. So they, they were then even in worse situation. Eventually, however, he uh, washed up, was caught on an island or near an island, was caught by the Japanese. And the Japanese, finding out that he was an Olympic runner, decided not to kill him out of hand, but thought he could be a use for the propaganda. And so they on sent him to Japan, where he was horrendously abused by the system, but by one man in particular. If you know the story, you can see all the incredible feats that he had to do to survive the horrendous abuse. He miraculously survived the war, returned home, but was afflicted as many young men of that generation by what is now called PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And he became a raving alcoholic, abusive to his wife, and his marriage was on the verge of collapse in 1948. And his wife, in absolute desperation, said, why don't we try God? And she managed to bring her husband along to this crusade by this young lad called Billy Graham, which no one had heard of in 1948. And it was actually the start of where a move of God's spirit was to start, and it was the start of Billy Graham's uh, crusade. We became quite famous. And so he turned up, and there uh, in the 1948, despite having a hardened heart, he encountered God and remembered that on the boat in that life raft, how many promises he had made to God. Oh God, if you save me, I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. Anyone done those sort of situations? He'd promised hundreds of times, but as soon as he was out, he was like, I don't want religion or God, I want to party up. And so he remembered those promises and God's miraculously saving him on numerous occasions. Uh, there was a, um, uh, in, in the, when his aircraft was going down, there was something that happened miraculously in the plane, but you can read all about it. And later he gave his life to serving the Lord. But my retelling here hasn't done the miraculous story any justice, really. It's a great story to read. If you've got summer reading coming up, go read Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. It's, she's, done, she's not a Christian, but she's done a fair job retelling his story. It's a worthwhile summer read. But one of the little details that struck me was, was, uh, was Louis' mum. When Louis' mum had heard the telegram arrive that the plane had been shot down over the Pacific, and everyone just came around commiserating, well, your son is dead, we're so sorry. 
And she, she was gripped by this internal voice that she felt that her son was alive. And it was a light that she couldn't silence. And so months later, when the official telegram said, well, it's been six months, we haven't found any hider here, the search is finished, no sign of him, uh, we, we presume, missing, presumed, killed was the normal status. And they, they, they sent her the life insurance check. She was so convinced, in spite of zero evidence, and in spite of overwhelming evidence, that likely being that her son was dead, she put the life insurance policy in a bank account in his name, awaiting his return. And of course, eventually, uh, he actually went onto the radio. The Japanese uh, put him onto the radio to announce his survival as a propaganda coup. Uh, and she heard her, her, her son's voice over the Japanese radio that her son had survived. She had hoped against all re human reasons to hope, against the advice of all the people around her that hope was futile, that her son was dead and she needed to accept it. But God wasn't finished with Louis Zamberini. In his divine providence, he had a plan for his life. But that hope against all hope, those stories, have you heard of so such stories of mums or dads or people like this? They are quite interesting, you know, the beacons that those people have. Or I think of the man who was the, I think the brother of the rugby player who was in the ocean for days and days and days. I've forgotten the name of the player, but he was eventually found by the family. He'd been swimming in the ocean for days and they had believed against all human reason. And these stories are beacon. Well, in the Bible, we see this is in Abraham, but in a much greater and truer and better way. Let's read, this is the NLT's version. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. Even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. So this morning's message I've called, Believing God's Promises Brings Glory to God. This is, as I said, my last message on Romans this year. I said at the beginning of the year we'd do about four chapters. It's a nice little a chunk. And then when we're wrapping that up now, and we're hoping, God willing, to recontinue the Romans series in about March next year. So Abraham, like Lewis's mum, hoped against hope, or as the NLT puts it, hoped against any reasonable human hope. So that Sarah could have a child as he was 100 and Sarah was past the age of bearing children. He hoped because of the promise of God given to him that he would become the father of many nations for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. So on one hand, Abram had the promise of God given to him. And on the other hand, he happened to have all of those human factors saying that this would be impossible. Who do you believe? The promises of God or your human situations? These, this is a really good thing to decide upon. This was written, as says Paul, for our benefit. Who do you believe? Do you believe culture? Do you believe Shortland Street, what the politicians say? Do you, what is the highest value for what, where you ground truth and reality? 
Well, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And it's his word and his promises that shape, I pray, the reality, the way I see the world. Faith always has an object to it. You are, uh, those here in this room are sitting on chairs. It's perhaps, if you're listening on podcasts, you might be driving a car. But for those here this morning, they are sitting here on chairs. For everyone sitting on a chair, you have faith in the chairs you are sitting on. The object of your faith is those chairs. You're hoping that they're not going to break. Uh, when I was at high, does anyone remember the days at high school? And then you'd, you'd sit down and someone would move the chair. Did, did that ever happen to you? Well, nothing's changed, and when I, that would happen to me. I'd, I'd go sit down, and, and you remember that sensation when you're, when, you, when, you're, when you're waiting the seat, but there's no seat. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, all the boys there go, ha, 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 ha. Well, I, I had faith in the object, but there was no object. <laughs> but but, but the, in the seats that you're in, you have faith in that. When you fly on an aircraft, you have a faith in Air New Zealand and the systems enabling for the maintenance of the aircraft. You don't know those systems. You just have faith that those systems are working. And of course, married couples, when a young couple or an older couple get married, they have faith in the other person's ability to fulfill the marriage vows. For the Christian, our faith also has an object. Our faith is not in faith. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in God and in his word and God's ability to keep his promises. We are believing that God created the universe out of nothing, that he is all-powerful, and that not only is he all-powerful, we're believing promises about God's character, that he is a good and loving God, and that he will fulfill all his promises. May I suggest, and I've grown up at times, and Christians haven't had that sort of faith They've gone to church because of social reasons. Uh, some of them had, had believed Lloyd Gehring and things that God didn't exist. There was all sorts of reasons. And I, and I guess as a younger person, you know, when I remember going to church and really not liking it, I thought, why would you keep going to church? For me, I'd be out in the I'm, I'm playing golf. The reason I come and worship is I, believe, I have an object of my faith that is the one, the true and the living God. And, that he, and his word is true and sure, and he will fulfill all his promises. This is the object and basis of foundation of our faith. But a question comes to my mind at least. How do we believe in the goodness of God and his promises when we don't get what we are desiring? How does this faith work out when we don't get what we pray for? How does believing in the promises of God bring God glory when we don't get what we want? For example, how does this faith in God's promises and goodness work when a couple remains childless? They read the text about Abraham receiving a child, but they haven't received a child. Or a healing doesn't come, or a relationship isn't restored. Or a person that a person's been praying for, a child, a grandchild, a niece or a nephew, a husband or wife, does not come to faith. How does believing in the promises of God work in the midst of the complexities and disappointments of life we all suffer? I think the key is to truly know what the promises of God are actually saying. And so before we get into the promises of God in the text we're looking at this morning, because that's what we're doing, passage by passage, look, and we'll look at these wonderful promises in this morning's text. Before we get there, let's look at some other texts, and then we'll, it'll, it'll, it'll prepare the way into the text this morning. Psalm 34.10 says, Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
Jesus says in Matthew, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then are then are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, some interpret these good things as the things we want, when we want, and the way we want. Well, we ask, we receive, and God's going to give me a good gift. This good gift must be just what I want. The healing in my marriage, the job I want, a child, you fill in the gap of whatever is missing in your life, whatever is, is something that's causing you pain and you've prayed about and you're wanting the answer to. And you're thinking, God, I've got the solution here. I'm wanting this, this, and this, this way. And if you give it to me, my life will be great. Is that what the good gift happens to be? Jesus says in the first part, ask and it will be given to you. The second part is a good gift. May I suggest to you the good gift is not necessarily the good gift you are wanting. It brings God glory when we believe all of the promises of God are yes and amen, and that no good thing we will lack. It brings Him glory when the way He answers our prayers are not necessarily in the timing we want, the way we want, and, and that the God's good gift may not be uh, done exactly the way we want. It, make, it brings God glory when we say, your will be done, not ours. So C.S. Lewis, talking about the good things, says this wryly. This is what he says. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. C.S. Lewis, I'll say that again. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. God's a good God. We are wondering how painful that best will turn out to be. Steve Fuller, a pastor in the Middle East, says, What is the greatest good gift we can receive? David says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And as if, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. And Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So the greatest good is God himself, knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is not just knowing about God. This is not turning up to a Sunday school class or a, a sermon and learning new information about God and the topic of theology. This is experiencing the peace of God. This is knowing who God is. Do you know God? Have you encountered him in the middle of the storm? Have you had that peace and joy when nothing else, when everything else is screaming, life is hopeless? This is knowing God. And it is this peace, it is this that is the good gift. There is no greater gift. So what does it mean when he, when he promises we will lack no good thing? Healing can be good, but so can lack of healing. If God is our greatest treasure, then what makes something good is whether it brings us more of God. If God is our greatest good, then what makes something good is whether it brings more of God. So being healed of a sickness can be good. Because it brings more of good by showing his power, his mercy, his goodness, a powerful witness of God's power in the world. So when I was in Massey Presbyterian, this is a number of years ago, one of the elders in the church 
fallen off one of the, he was doing lights, he was an electrical engineer, and the ladder fell, and he fell onto the pews, those wooden pews, his back, smacked and broke his back. He was taken into hospital, and understandably, he was told he would never walk again. He was miraculously healed, and I, he, he was walking around when I, when, when I was the elder. Only the living God could do that. And the surgeon, who was one of the top surgeons, I think, apologized to him because he told the surgeon, I believe God is going to heal me. I believe that is my will. And the surgeon said, well, you may believe that, but the science says you are wrong. And when he walked out of that hospital, the surgeon had the thing to meet him and say, I'm really sorry, I was wrong. They had no reason to be able to describe for why his nerves were able to reconnect, but they could not resist the reality of seeing Jim walk out of, that, of, out of that hospital on both legs. So God's name was glorified through healing. But we also know from the Bible that God is glorified through lack of healing. This is what Paul experienced. Paul was crying out for relief from his thorn of the flesh. Oh God, this sucks. Help me. Take it from me. And this is what God's word said. His heavenly father said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, said Paul, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God was glorified in Abraham and Sarah's waiting. God was glorified when Lazarus wasn't healed, when, it, when the sisters said, come and heal Lazarus. He was raised from the dead. There were greater goods that the Lord was at work. No good thing we lack if we love the Lord. All the promises of God are yes and amen. And the greatest good that surpasses all other goods is having Christ. So now coming back, marinated in those promises. Let's come back to the promises that we have here in this text. If you've got the Bible in front of you, let's have a look and read. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. Verse 21, he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. Verse 23, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded. For our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. It brings God glory when we believe that Jesus was handed over to die because of the wretched, horrible sins of one Alistair McNaughton. That Jesus died for me. It brings God glory when I say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. There is no good within me except what comes from you. I deserve eternal separation or damnation, as was said in the olden time ago. But thanks be to God, you have saved me. It, it honors the Lord when I believe that. It brings God glory, and it's for our eternal benefit. It's the greatest good we could possibly have. We're declared friends of God. We're totally forgiven. We're given Christ's righteousness. We have eternal life. We have God's spirit in us, and his peace and his joy to go through life. This is a greatest good, greater than a happy marriage, greater than having children, greater than wealth or in a healing or health or even our life. Do you believe this? Because my friends, a day will come, perhaps when you walk into a doctor's surgery, 
or you hear the news on a phone, or a policeman comes to your door, or some news comes across the TV One news, the world has turned upside down. It can happen this century. It might happen to you. And when those moments come, where is your peace? Where is your joy? Where is your foundation? On whom do the promises do you trust in? The greatest good is knowing Jesus Christ. You know, as, uh, when I, when, I don't know if when you're reading the Bible, we, I, I, I always tend to look at it through the circumstances I'm going through. You need to do that. You're reading the Bible and you've got your life here and there's God's word here and you're, you're viewing it through the lens of what's going on in your life. I just can't help but doing that. And so do forgive me. Uh, I'm, uh, as, I, as I was reading this morning's you know, message this, this week and meditating on it, all of the, the only thing that's on my mind right now is Catherine's terminal cancer. That's understandable, isn't it? You know, and I can't but help look at every text through what's going on. My whole life has been tipped upside down in ways I would have never have thought of. It's always on my mind. And perhaps there are things going on in your life. And as you read this morning's text, you're hearing the Holy Spirit prompt things in relation to what's going on in your life, what the greatest good is. Well, may I suggest this, that while I have no explicit, specific promise of God that Catherine will be healed from this cancer, we do have, based off the Word of God and the promises of God in Scripture, the incredible, hope-filled, joy-saturated promises that God can do miraculous things here on earth, such as healing. And it brings God glory for Catherine and I, and for you, to have faith without doubt, believing and confidence in God's ability to heal Catherine. We heard that in actually Peter's prayer. It was a confident, hope-filled prayer for the healing of Catherine. I can assure you the doctors are disagreeing on, on the prognosis there, Peter. But, but, but actually our hope is based on the power of God, not what doctors say. Right? And so it's good, right and sound to earnestly pray for it. But above all, above that... It brings God glory to believe that ultimately for, that, for those who love him, we lack no good thing. Our heavenly Father love gives us good gifts. He hears our prayers. And then in praying what we most earnestly above all need is more of him. Not more healings. Not more miraculous signs. In fact, the Bible says that when the man of lawlessness comes, he'll come with many signs. He says there are many false prophets that will do many healings in his name. We do not need healings and miraculous signs as much as we need Jesus Christ and his promises and his truth. So what I want during my journey, what Catherine wants, is more of God, more of Jesus, because Jesus is more than enough. And if that means no healing, then that is ultimately, whatever I may think of it on this side of eternity, ultimately on the other side of eternity, that is a good gift from the Father's hand. Abraham was promised a descendant by which he would be the father of many nations. But I would argue that the best and truest gift he received was not Isaac, but it was knowing God and being declared a friend of God, the father of faith. And that this faith was credited to him as righteousness and that it opened the doors of eternal life to him. Knowing God was greater than Isaac. That was the true good that Abraham received. And it brought God glory for Abraham to believe all the promises of God are yes and amen. 
And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit, it was recorded. For our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. These promises are the greatest good. Do you believe it? Do you live it out? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful promises of your word. That, Lord, we can know you today. We can experience your power that this is not religion. This is not just turn up to church, have a social interaction and head home. That we can know the creator of the universe. We can know your power and peace and joy And this is something that makes the world look on and say, what have you got that we don't have? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a church that believes in the promises of God. You are the object of our faith. Everyone in the world has faith. They have faith in the government, faith in society, faith in various different things. But for us, we have faith in you, Lord Jesus, and your word. You are the object of our faith. And we say that we agree that all your promises are yes and amen. And we believe that you have good gifts that you want to give us this morning. And that no matter, that above all, the best gift we can receive is more of you. And our Lord, I ask that for this church, we would receive more of you. No matter what the cost or price we have to pay, grant us more of you in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.